0: hi it's Jill Schlesinger on this episode of Jill on money we're talking about the steps you need to take to learn how to be a good investor
1: how much money is coming in how much is going out you have to have an understanding you have to have an emergency savings account you need to have set your goals and that's really the first thing you should be doing because before you start investing you need to know why what is your big why when are you gonna need access to your money and you need to have your short medium and long-term goals
0: welcome to the Jill on money podcast we're presented by Marcus by Goldman Sachs now we've got a great show today because we've got Erin Lowry back on the program Erin was the woman who wrote broke millennial and now her follow-up Broke millennial takes on investing is hitting the bookshelves Aaron calls this a beginner's guide to your money but you know what it's kind of a great refresher for any of us and what I love about having Aaron in the house is that she does have a unique perspective of her cohort and so we are delighted to have Aaron on the program remember if you've got a financial question it could be about investing or anything else just shoot us an email ask Jill at JillonMoney.com. Ask Jill at JillOnMoney.com. And now here's our interview with Aaron Lowry. You're listening to Jill on Money with Jill Schlesinger. Aaron Lowry, welcome back to the program. It's great to be back. You're a recidivist guest. I am. I think you'll be back again and again. I hope so. Uh, you got a new book out after the huge success of broke millennial you have your follow-up which is broke millennial takes on investing subtitle a beginner's guide to leveling up your money why leveling up what is that about
1: well the first one the subtitle is stop scraping by and get your financial life together so after you've gotten it together now it's time to level up and it's the gamification it's a very millennial term just trying to stay on brand over here Uh uh-huh
0: I got you but this is not a book only for Millennials
1: it's not it really can be for everyone it's certainly targeted towards Millennials as I am one of them and it's definitely my demographic and I do like to address some millennial pain points like hey I have student loans should I be investing while I have student loans what's your answer to that it depends interest rate on your student loans if they're five percent or higher maybe we don't invest at the same time except for into your retirement accounts under five percent depends on your risk tolerance and debt tolerance
0: so what about the idea of somebody who says okay I I put up to my match in my retirement accounts so let's say six percent and I have these outstanding loans which are actually more than five percent mostly the federal loans especially right they're in the six to seven Uh, What's your advice on that? Should they put extra money into retirement or debt pay down?
1: To me, it depends, which I know is a very infuriating answer for a lot of people, but it's usually the right answer when it comes to personal finance. It really depends on your short and medium-term goals. I would not be investing for a short-term goal, but if it's a medium-term goal that you might want some money invested in the beginning – but on the flip side if you're very debt-averse like I am and you want it paid down fast I totally empathize with that
0: I look at it in a slightly different way maybe it's because I've gotten my ass handed to me in my life and I say if you had say a six and a half percent student loan I might suggest to you that it's hard to get a six and a half percent return it is it's hard to consistently produce that over time But a six and a half percent guaranteed return is pretty awesome. We can't find that anywhere. So I always err on the side of paying down the debt because I'm a wimp.
1: And no one ever regrets paying off debt quickly. I think that's the other thing to consider.
0: Absolutely. What else is specific to the millennials and the, the specific points that came up after your first book? Obviously, you got feedback. And so you followed up with this book. What else was a pain point for a millennial?
1: honestly, it's the language. And that was the big feedback I got. There's a small investing chapter in the first book that really talks a little bit more about retirement than anything else, because that's usually your first point of contact with investing. And at the end of that chapter, I recommended, here are a couple other books that you might want to look into if you're interested in learning about investing. And I started getting emails that said, hey, I'm ready to move on to next phases. I'm ready to invest. And I checked out some of these books and I just don't understand them. And these are books that really are positioned for beginners. And the language that gets used, they're great books, but a lot of times I think people forget that you don't know what an index fund is just off the top of your head. You have to back up.
0: Now, you also, in this book, turn to a bunch of hack experts, including the one interviewing you right now. So why turn to other people to provide the commentary?
1: I am not an expert in investing, and I make that very clear in the beginning of the book. I do not have any credentials. I don't have any certifications. I haven't passed any exams. So to me, it needed to have the voice of a bunch of people who did. And also, I am just pushing 30. By the time this book comes out, I'll be a few weeks shy of 30. I've pretty much only experienced a bull market. And as you just said earlier, you've had your ass handed to you before, and I needed insight from people who had experienced that as well.
0: What about the downside when you talk to millennials is scary to them? Because remember after the... Great Recession and the financial crisis we were hearing that the millennial generation that came of age specifically at that moment was going to be very wary of investing what have you found in the people who give you feedback
1: I think that's still the case Still, a lot of people still are wary I think the other really important thing is to reposition how we talk about retirement. And I talk about this a bit in the book that we say save for retirement. And I would like us to start saying invest for retirement because people don't recognize themselves as an investor if all they have is a 401k. Language is important. And I think if we have that tiny mental shift, it can also encourage people to be investing in other ways in the future. The other big problem, of course, is student loans, which is why it gets its own chapter in the book it's really stressful to try to be balancing all these financial priorities in your life and a lot of people feel like well this is something that I can easily just tackle right now and some people forego putting money away for retirement investing for retirement because they're just so focused on the student loan debt
0: I think you bring up a really smart point and that is if you are being kept up at night by these debt loads I can understand especially in your 20s the feeling like I have just got to get rid of this What's your feeling about that?
1: I like to pivot to if you have a match on a 401k, it's free money. And I know it is like trite and cliche advice at this point, but take the match. And if you can't afford to take the full match, start at 1%. Every six months, try to push it up by another 1%.
0: How do you approach when people go in the other direction, which is I'm completely immobilized, scared to invest, and yet they seem to be fine buying shares of their own company when maybe they work in a startup what is it that you find people are missing about that part of it like the the ultra risky which I guess they don't see as so risky
1: they don't and I definitely try to explain that in the book that there is a lack of diversification there if your income is tied to your company and all of your investments are tied to your company and your company goes down oof, that's gonna be a horrible financial situation for you so it's okay to buy in a little bit but that can't be exclusively how you're investing but I would say it's probably because they fundamentally, or at least they fundamentally feel that they understand the product, mm. which makes it a less scary investment in their mind. And maybe they get a deal, and everyone loves a deal.
0: What do you think is um, another, like, a misconception among millennials when it comes to investing?
1: Oh, I feel like there are so many of them. Oh, Where should we start? Do a, okay, let's do, a, <laughs>
0: let's do a let's do a more fun. Let's do the top three misconceptions about investing. And not all millennials. So if you're listening to this and you're millennial and you're like freaking out, this doesn't have to be you. But generally speaking, Aaron's the expert of the millennial generation and investing for this moment. What's the feedback that you get that you think is the misconception?
1: Well, I'm going to use one of the taglines from the book, and that is time to shake the misconception that investing is just for the wealthy. And that's number one is people feel like, well, I am just not rich or wealthy enough to be investing in the first place. That's only something that rich people do. Hmm. false yeah again coming back to retirement that is investing but also you don't have to have a ton of money in order to get into the market another big one is there's a lot of misunderstanding about how you get in who to trust where to go in order to invest And a big one I think that's kind of funny is about robo-advisors.
0: Oh, so let's talk about that. Do tell.
1: Well, a lot of people seem to have this under, like, it's not an understanding because it's a misconception. A lot of people seem to think that robo-advisors have this magical algorithm that knows how to beat the market and somehow is just going to figure out everything for you. First of all, people are involved in every step of the process. Yes, there are algorithms touching some parts where you're really looking at rebalancing and tax loss harvesting and kind of comparing different products, but people are still involved in all angles. And if the market starts to go down or there's a correction or if we swing into another recession here eventually the robo-advisor can't just get you out of it there's not this special algorithm that's going to prevent it and i interviewed some people that work for robo-advisors and they all said that they get frantic emails every time that are like why is mine going down you're supposed to be able to solve for this like no you don't fundamentally understand what's happening here
0: so what is your messaging beyond that the algorithm's not going to save you how do you bring this new generation of investors into the to the right frame of mind about what market returns are all about?
1: For me, a big part of the conversation is this fundamental understanding that it's going to go down and you have to be okay with that. And it's up and down. You're going to weather the ups and downs of the market. It's just part of the process. And also... There are very inflammatory headlines in the media, that are, All those com- media people. <laughs> that are completely without real context if you haven't done your research into the market. For example, I remember last year there was a big one about Dow Jones drops 800 points, biggest drop in history. Well, OK, 800 800- points. Points was certainly the biggest drop but it wasn't the largest percentage drop that had ever happened so it's making sure that you also know how to read between the lines on certain things
0: so we did misconception one and we did misconception two. what's the third misconception
1: I would say that there's a misconception about how early you need to be getting started and that you can't play catch-up very easily so a lot of people will think hey you know I'm 25 things are pretty tough broke millennial status I was there. I remember. So you feel, well, you know, I'm not so much going to focus on putting money away for retirement or any other sort of investing. I'm just going to focus on the immediate short term needs. When I'm 35, I'll be making a lot of money. I'll have paid off my loans. I'll be in a better situation. That's when I'll start. So, two problems with that. One, even if you double down how much you're investing 10 years later, you're not necessarily going to catch up with yourself if you had started at 25. The other issue is life tends to get more complicated, Mm. not easier. Mm. So while, yes, you might be making more money, maybe you paid off your student loans, perhaps you got married, maybe you bought a house, maybe you started a family, and all those things cost money. And I think lifestyle inflation, in addition to all of this, tends to happen too. So while you might have more income, it doesn't mean you still have A lot of money to put into your investments to try to play catch up
0: it's funny I was talking to somebody who said to me I live paycheck to paycheck someone here at work I said you and your spouse make two hundred and sixty thousand dollars a year together and you live paycheck to paycheck she's like yep we literally have no money left when we come to the end of the month and I think that's shocking to people but it is exactly what you say this lifestyle creep this you know well now I have three kids and I've got three more mouths to feed and I think what they also mean is when they say paycheck to paycheck that they're both maxing out their retirement accounts which is great but the catch-up part of it which they thought they would be able to do not close I mean they're barely maxing out so I think that's a great point in going through and writing this book what did you learn that you didn't know before about investing
1: oh my goodness a lot and some of it was terminology I remember doing an interview at one point and the interviewee said basis point. And I said, you know, I'm going to stop you right here. I hear that term all the time and I've never totally understood what people mean. Could you explain it? And it was little things like that and the terminology. And I also found it fascinating to get so many different perspectives on the same topic and how many people had different thresholds for when you should be investing if you have debt or if you should be investing. I also did an interview recently where somebody made the argument that even if you have credit card debt, you should still be investing because of compound interest, which I argued against, but it's interesting how many different ways and perspectives of viewing investing exist.
0: Okay, we'll be right back with our interview with Erin Lowry after this quick break.
1: This is Jill on Money
0: hi I'm Jill Schlesinger host of the Jill on money podcast I'm also a certified financial planner and a CBS News business analyst I'm here to tell you that the Jill on money podcast has a new sponsor Marcus by Goldman Sachs Marcus is part of a storied company that's been a leader in financial services for generations Marcus offers simple secure access to FDIC insured savings products Including a high yield online savings account that doesn't have any transaction fees or minimums. They also have certificates of deposit and no penalty CDs. Marcus was recently recognized as one of Fast Company's most innovative companies in finance of 2019. To start building your savings today to help meet your financial goals tomorrow, go to Marcus.com. It's your money. You can do this. Marcus on your side. Goldman Sachs Bank USA member FDIC okay we're back to our interview with Erin Lowry what else did you learn researching this book and writing it did you learn something different about yourself and about how you view investing
1: I still cannot bring myself to completely stop investing in a taxable account even though my husband and I are paying off his student loans I really thought in the beginning that it was gonna. I was going to need to focus entirely on his student loan debt. Mm-hmm. And I started writing this book right around the time that we got married. And I inherited, if you will. Not really. My name's not legally on anything. But that became a real part of my life. Mm-hmm. And I truly thought, you know, once that happens, I'm just going to want to put every extra dollar towards getting out of that debt as fast as possible. We're going to press pause on investing in taxable accounts. And then it happened. I was like, you know... I just, I gotta keep investing. I also bought my first individual stock. Oh, do tell. I did it doing research for the book. The plan was basically, hey, this is some speculative money I can afford to lose, but I feel like I should go through the actual experience of doing it mm-hmm. in order to also even just dealing with an interface and seeing what questions was I was going to have to ask myself, like stop loss, limit buy, like all those kind of terms. I had no idea what any of them Where meant. did you do
0: it? Through which organization? I did it with Charles Schwab. Okay. So you open up a Schwab account and it's just in your name. Mm-hmm. Husband's not on it. Nope. How did you pick your first stock?
1: So this is kind of a weird story, and I talk about it a little bit in the book. My dad works in the lithium industry, so I grew up understanding and learning about lithium, the raw material that goes into both cell phone batteries and your antidepressant medication. Real weird product. And it's become a bit of a hot topic lately because of renewable energy and because of batteries and trying to store energy and Tesla and all of that and i thought you know if i can invest in a lithium company i'm pretty bullish on the future of lithium mm. so i did some research and that's what i picked okay one company one company i just did one company bought some shares had a set amount i was willing to put in just to test it out and see what happens and so far so far we're doing okay it was amazing at the beginning oh, it was yes, you're like Woo, huge I did it. i'm huge a genius bull run, and then not as much
0: so did but I'm you still up. okay so, after having this experience, which is what a yearish, it's
1: been about a, yeah a year and a half.
0: Okay, do you wish you had done something different, like take some of the money off the table? Did you wish that you had said, "Let me put a limit order in that if I buy it at ten and it gets to fifteen, I'll sell half of it"? Did you have any of that in retrospect? Do you wish you had done that
1: in retrospect after seeing where it was kind of peaking in the run, mm-hmm. like oh, if I had cashed out that would be another student loan payment done. oh
0: so have you changed any of your approach to the stock itself in other words have you put a limit on it so a limit is for everyone listening a limit is you pick a point on the upside or the downside where you say if it gets to this point sell this position sell a portion of this position will you put a limit on this now
1: I'm not going to I'm still kind of value investor about it and I it was a buy-and-hold strategy even though as an individual stock so I kind of mentally earmarked it for a few years to see how it goes Mm -hmm. and I would say if in two years it's underperforming then I'm gonna have to make some tough decisions
0: okay also you're doing this in a taxable account don't you have some retirement account where you could play with this so you don't have to worry about taking gains and worrying about taxes
1: I do and I could have but again Book research is what I'm going to cash this under and say, I just wanted to try in a taxable account and see what happens. All right, all right, all right. And I'm still up. All right. All right. All right. So,
0: okay, next question for you. In writing the book, did you think when you started the process that investing was more mathematical or emotional?
1: I would say emotional, just from book one, because I think everything related to money is a hundred percent emotion. Mm-hmm. Obviously, math, so let's say ninety percent, because obviously math plays a role. But the decisions that we make are pretty much purely emotional. Very rarely are we actually rational when it comes to our money, and investing. I think mm. again, just almost compounds the issue in a lot of ways because it feels outside of your control. Mm. Something else is out there manipulating why the market is going up and down, and It might not even be our country, and that's a big thing that I try to point out. First of all, ideally, you should be invested outside of our country as well as part of your overall diversification. But when Brexit happened, for instance, our markets were impacted too. And I think sometimes people forget that it's really a global economy at this point. So you have to be looking at what's happening everywhere.
0: Here's another word that you can just toss around. I don't think you put it in the book, but we call that in trading parlance an exogenous event.
1: Oh, it's not in the book I like it
0: so meaning that it's like an out there event that you don't have any control over and you probably never factored it in when you thought about it I think that one of the misconceptions that I am consistently faced with is people really believing that a lower risk portfolio has no risk like I'm diversified how did I lose money it's gonna be interesting to see how all these younger folks who are starting to invest post financial crisis manage the first really bad nasty stretch because we've had a few dips and they've been dramatic but we've come back right so December felt really awful but now it's three months four months later everyone seems like fine so how do you think the world of robos will manage when you have a bunch of young investors freaking out
1: I am hopeful that the way that robos, first of all, are usually pretty proactive about emailing you, which I have found to be a great strategy. You know, if that's going through a correction, I would get some emails because I'm signed up for most of their newsletters. Mm-hmm. And days that we would have a bit of a dip, you would get an email that basically says, don't panic. Don't touch it. Don't panic. Leave it alone. Right. You planned for this, even though you don't feel like you planned for this. I also like that a few of them, when you log in, If it's gone down, there's not an angry red arrow pointing down where I invest. That's what it shows, which feels very aggressive and negative. Yeah. And I can totally understand that if you have a very low risk tolerance, that's going to trigger you to do something. And another woman that I interviewed for the book who was obviously investing during 2008, I remember her saying, I didn't check a single statement for the entire year of 2008 because I knew that I didn't want to I wasn't gonna like what I was gonna see but that I had built a portfolio that was gonna weather the storm mm-hmm. but I needed to not take a look and I'm hopeful that we can get that sort of mentality out to the Millennials before it happens
0: you know it's awesome I just thought of like a fun cue that we should tell all these robos to do which is on a down day you should have a smiley face which says buying opportunity okay so What do you think of these platforms that essentially allow you to buy individual stocks for zero?
1: I think if you want to dabble, I totally get it. The big thing to me about those guys are the fees, because the fee is so small, seemingly a dollar or more. Sometimes it goes up to three, depends on what you're getting. Now, I live here in New York City. A dollar doesn't even pay for a load of laundry. So I totally understand that in your mind, it's like, hey, I don't have to put a lot in. Again, this idea of shaking the misconception is only for wealthy people. I can put just a few bucks in. Great. Problem is, a dollar is going to eat up all of your returns if you're only putting in a few bucks a month. My rule of thumb for that is you need to be putting between $25 and $50 per month in in order to really see any sort of value. I think that it's a good addition if you want to be playing around. I don't think this should be the sole way in which you're investing.
0: Somebody interviewed me yesterday about some of these apps. I said, look, I have not banged on any of these apps, but this is what I need everybody to understand. Even if the cost is zero, it is essentially like going to Vegas, except you don't get a drink. Like you can go shoot craps for hours and get lots of free drinks in Vegas which is awesome
1: and it's not zero because there are expense ratios and a lot of people don't understand that and that's a point that I really tried to get across in the book too
0: if you have to leave the the Millennials with like you know sort of your three big important messages around investing which is a very classic question that you'll be asked what are those three lessons
1: The first thing that I do want to say, and this is the only thing I would say that it's kind of unique in my book compared to some of the others, is I do come up with this concept of putting on your financial oxygen mask. And you have to have some things checked off before you can start investing. And by can, I mean should, because obviously you can go do it if you want. I can't control anything. Right. Biggie on those are you need to have a budget, which everyone hates that term, so let's call it a cash flow. Let's. How much money is coming in, how much is going out, you have to have an understanding You have to have an emergency savings account. If you are without an emergency savings, please do not be investing your money until you've built that up. What
0: do you like as an emergency reserve fund?
1: Personally, I like at least three months of basic living expenses. Six months, obviously, is the better, more conservative option. And keep working on it. But at least three before you even entertain investing. Cash flow, emergency reserve. You need to have set your goals. And that's really the first thing you should be doing. Because before you start investing, you need to know why. What is your big why? When are you going to need access to your money? And you need to have your short, medium, and long-term goals. I do not believe in putting risk on your short-term goals. I do not believe in investing your emergency fund. A bit of a controversial topic to some people, especially I think the millennials. Oh,
0: I know. That's such baloney.
1: Boulderdash. I, I know. You need to have access to that cash. People think
0: this money is just like wasting away. That's what it should be doing.
1: Well, also, you have options for better than 0.01% savings accounts, which, kicking it back to my first book, if that's what your savings is in, you're doing it wrong. You need to be putting your money in currently, as of this recording, that's north of 2%. You're not gonna get rich off it but that's kind of keeping pace with inflation totally. so that's good absolutely so move your money into a better savings account for your emergency fund do not invest it I also say you need to be at least current if not paid off on your student loans And you have to do the math on your interest rates before you start putting risk on your money in oh, the you market. oh you want us
0: to do so much you so mean
1: Aaron. there's this very long checklist but if you do it all then you're putting yourself in a great position to get started now, of course, once you do, I would say start early if you can, be consistent, kind of that tried and true advice about investing, and make sure that you're touching base with your portfolio at least once a year. Evaluate what you're invested in. How is it performing? Do you need to make any moves?
0: Aaron Lowry, I am delighted to have participated in this really great and important book. I don't want to just say it's for millennials. I know that's your audience, but it is a great basic entryway into how to approach investing the broke millennial takes on investing Aaron Lowry thank you for joining us again thanks for having me back thanks to Aaron Lowry hey go grab that book broke millennial takes on investing it's a good college graduation present you might want to pair it with my book the dumb things smart people do with their money 13 ways to right your financial wrongs it's a book-a-thon we drop new episodes of Jill on Money every Tuesday and Thursday. If you'd like to get on the air live with us, just send us an email. Ask Jill at JillonMoney.com. You can download this show anywhere you get your podcasts. Apple, Google Play, Radio.com, or Stitcher. Our music is composed by Joel Goodman. Mark Tallercio is the executive producer, and maybe I should also add this, our webmaster. You can check out our website, JillonMoney.com we are distributed by cadence 13 the show is presented by Marcus by Goldman Sachs see you next week